Today we come to the final sermon in a short series on the book of Haggai. And so if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me there now. What we find in the text this morning, the second half of the first chapter, is a great motivation for our own sanctification. Motivation to walk in obedience to all the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to. Great motivation to serve and work in the building of the church of Jesus Christ. And this motivation, it comes through one negative truth and two positive promises of blessing and reward. So this is seen in, I have three points for this morning. If you're taking notes, I want to write them down. The first one is corporate defiling from disobedience. Corporate defiling from disobedience. Number two, corporate blessing for obedience. And then number three, an individual blessing or an individual reward for obedience. But let's just begin by reading the text together. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 23 is what we're going to be covering. On the 24th day of the ninth month, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. And the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now before we get into the outline, I want to just set the scene and the context again. And the context for this message, possibly even more so than the others that we've gone through, the context helps us to understand the meaning of this text here and what Haggai is getting at. Look at verse 10 again. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by the prophet. Unlike the other dates that Haggai has mentioned, this one does not fall on any feast day or celebration day mentioned in the law. The time of year is December 19th, according to our calendar. The late rains of the year, they've softened the ground, they've plowed their ground, and they have planted their seeds. It's likely all the seeds that they need planted for the summer, they're in the ground already when Haggai speaks about this. But more important than the time of year to this passage is what happened just prior to Haggai delivering this oracle. This message from Haggai 
It's only two months after his previous one that began in chapter 2, verse 1, where he was encouraging the people to remain steadfast in their work on the temple. He encouraged them to remain steadfast because it pleased Yahweh. He was glorified by them going up and working on the temple. And he also encouraged them by reminding them that eventually their work on the temple would lead to the restoration of the kingdom. But in between these two passages, these two months, there was another very important message delivered to these people by a different prophet. Between these two messages, the month in between the seventh month, which was chapter 2, verse 1, and the ninth month, chapter 2, verse 10, Zechariah began his prophetic ministry to these same people. And his message to these people and their response is of utmost importance for us to understand what Haggai is informing them of here. Why God is blessing them. And so take your Bibles and possibly it's on the same page, but maybe the next page over to go to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. In the eighth month, so between the seventh and the ninth month when Haggai delivered those two messages, Zechariah, preaching to the same people, says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me! says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So then, this is the response of the people. They repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so He dealt with us. So Zechariah, he doesn't list the specific sins in this passage that he's calling them to repent of. But the important thing in this passage is that the people are confronted by the prophet and they respond by repenting. Accepting that the Lord has dealt with them as their deeds deserve. Probably referring to, as we've talked about, the last 15 years, all of the plague, all of the drought that the Lord brought upon the people to frustrate their efforts. The Lord struck them. Took away their harvests. But the people, when confronted again, repented. And so when we get to verse 10 of Haggai chapter 2, you have Haggai speaking to a repentant people. Some commentators, you can go back to Haggai now, they try to say that this section in chapter 2 really should come at the end of chapter 1 because they, they recognize that it comes after a time of repenting and God is blessing them for their repentance. But they fail to notice and see that it's not the repentance of the people going up to work, but it's Zechariah calling them to repentance. So when you get to verse 10, the people have repented. So if you have an ESV Bible, you're, there's a little heading over verse 10 that says, Blessings for a defiled people. You should, and the, the titles, they're not inspired, they're not God's word. You should cross out that little word defiled and put repentant in there. God doesn't bless people who go on defiling themselves. These people have repented. These are the blessings for a repentant people. But this is extremely important because without this information, it seems as if God is going to bless them for their defilement, as the title in the ESV indicates. And instead of Haggai being an explanation for how the people are defiled now, it's an explanation for how the people, they were defiled before their repenting. Their disobedience was like a cancer that spread and defiled the whole body. 
And Haggai goes on to explain and proclaim how they can avoid going back to that defilement, how they can continue repenting. And that is by considering and remembering God's judgment upon them for their wickedness. So because of their repentance that's recorded in Zechariah, Yahweh is going to bless them as a corporate body. And then we see at the end that there are rewards for individuals who are faithful to obey. So with that brief introduction and getting into this passage, let's get to the first point, which is corporate defiling from disobedience. And again, as I mentioned, I think this passage gives motivations for continuing the work of repentance among the corporate body of God's people. Continuing motivation to continue to walk in faithfulness to the Lord. The first one is a negative truth that motivates us to continue to walk in faithfulness. This is a motivation because of the adverse effects of our disobedience. So let's read again 11-14. to Haggai says, If someone carries, he asks the priest, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. And then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It does become unclean. And then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. The prophets were sent by God to often speak new revelation, sometimes reiterating something from the past, but oftentimes to speak new revelation. But it was the priests who were to take what was already revealed by God, what God already said in the law, and teach it to the people. Making sure it was taught well, they were guarding the truth by teaching it well. And here, Haggai, he calls on the priests and other authority to answer a question clearly laid out in Scripture in the law of Moses. Obviously, Haggai wasn't concerned with meat in particular, rather It was just the object lesson he pointed to. In the Old Testament, holy meat had the power to sanctify that which it came in contact with. It came in contact with the fold of the garment, and so that was sanctified. It was made holy. Other things of the temple, the things that they touched, made those things holy. But something was only made holy when it came into direct contact with such holy objects. But by contrast, defilement was passed on by contact from object to person to another person like a contagious disease. Haggai, he moves on and says, this is a picture of God's people in verse 14. And one commentator notes that the second scenario is concerned with the contagious nature of defilement. One is so defiled, he had the ability to defile a third person or thing. Uncleanness is passed on even to the third degree, but holiness is not. So this commentator says, in a word, uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. Or you might say, disobedience and sin is more contagious than obedience among God's people. And this is a motivation for God's people to continue to practice repentance, continue to walk in faithfulness. Because your sin not only defiles you and all of your work and all of your offerings to God, but it is so corrupting that it has the power to spread among the people of God like a disease. Sin is a real pandemic we need to be concerned about can be brought in by anyone and corrupt any of God's people. And so it is a matter of brotherly love that we're not bringing sin into the camp because it has the power to defile and lead others into sin. This is the same principle about which Paul wrote to the Corinthians to warn them. Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul has strong words for the Corinthians who are tolerating sin in their midst. If you notice when you get there, the heading over chapter 5 is a good summary. At least in the ESV, it reads, Sexual immorality defiles the church. And the principle is the same. Any sin that comes into the church is going to defile the church. But the church of Corinth, Paul is using this as an example. 1 Corinthians 5, let's just read one verses 1-8. to eight. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For even though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul calls them to purge the evil from among them. Why? Because it has a defiling effect upon those around them. Tolerating that kind of sin in the church makes everyone else involved in less wicked acts feel comfortable in their sin. I mean, if this guy's over here doing this, I feel pretty good about my lesser sins over here. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It quietly permeates and it defiles, often unobservable to the naked eye. Jesus taught His disciples the very same principle. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. For a little leaven leavens a whole lump. The Pharisees' self-righteous attitude was a disease that actually numbed people from the Gospel. If you can be good enough to be accepted by God on your own merits, you don't need Jesus. And it's a wicked but contagious disease found in every other religion. But go a little further with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Jesus, when writing to the churches, He wrote this to the church of Thyatira. Revelation 2, 18-23. Reiterating the same principle. Reiterating the defiling nature of sin within a church. Look at Revelation 2, 18-23. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he's commending them for all the good things they're doing. But... Verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. So the church at Thyatira, they initially just tolerated this one person's sexual immorality, but it didn't stop there. It spread throughout the church. Tolerating just one sexual immoral person in a church, has the power to defile many. And if just one or some of the many are defiled, the whole congregation 
is defiled. The application for those whom Haggai wrote to is the same for us. Not only can we not tolerate sin within the congregation, but we must not tolerate sin in our own hearts. For the hidden sins of our own heart can be like a disease passed on to the other people around us. We need to purge the evil from our own hearts. And the focus in Haggai, you can go back there, the focus there is not a focus on the personal, but on the corporate. We need to purge the evil from our own hearts because it has a defiling effect on others. So there's this motivation here to continue walking in faithfulness, to continue repenting so that our sin doesn't spread and defile those around us. So we must purge it from our own hearts and have nothing to do with it. The lack of desire and priority for God's temple in the few had eventually spread to the entire congregation. To the point that the people were comfortable declaring publicly to everyone around them, it's not yet time to go up and build the temple. And everyone was okay with that because they had all been infected with this defiling desire to build their own houses instead of the Lord's. And a lack of love and fervor for the church to serve or be involved in gospel ministry If that takes seed in your own heart, it can also spread like a cancer just like it did back in the day of Haggai. Don't think it will just stay in your own heart and will spread like a defiling disease. So, continue to repent. Continue to walk faithfully. For your sin defiles those you come in contact with around you. Love your neighbor well. Repent and walk in faithfulness. And that sin of deprioritizing God that probably started in a few, it was corrupting and spread to the whole congregation. And it resulted in God bringing a drought upon them. Frustrating all of their efforts. They didn't have a good harvest in 15 years because they weren't putting God first but it resulted on God cursing them. Which is what God calls on them to remember in order to motivate them to continue in repentance. And that brings us to point two. A corporate blessing for obedience. A corporate blessing for obedience. Let's read verses 15-19 to again. Now then, consider from this day onward, Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? It's pointing them backwards. When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, Consider. And then he goes on to tell them, from this day on, I will bless you. So this section is a bit of a historical recounting of the curses laid out in chapter 1 on the people for their disobedience. But it culminates in the end with this promise of Yahweh's blessing upon them because of their continued repentance, their ongoing commitment to repent and serve Yahweh as God, to continue to put Him first. Yahweh had frustrated their every effort in years past, but now in light of their repentance, He will bless them. And this is obviously in the same vein of thinking as before. There's a corporate aspect to this. The people are blessed and cursed together as a corporate body. And what Haggai is going to tell them here is a motivation that will keep them on this path of repentance, on this path of faithfulness, on the path of blessing, walking in accordance with God's Word. 
The beginning of verse 15 says, Yet now. I mentioned this last week because it was used last week, but it's a phrase that is often used to mark a transition from the past to the present. They were going on defiling themselves, but they had repented. But now, how do you continue to walk this way? What came before was a look at the past, but they had repented of their sins, and now Haggai is calling them to action. And this is a familiar, favorite phrase of Haggai, translated in the ESV as consider, or in the Hebrew, set your heart, think deeply upon. In this section, it uses the repeated phrase, consider, or give careful thought, three times. And it also uses three times the phrase, from this day on. It creates a movement forward to the climactic declaration of, I will bless you. But what were they to consider, think deeply about? Again, much like chapter 1, they were to consider the past 15 years of cursing for their disobedience. Verse 16, he says, How did you fare? Haggai wanted them to think back to their miserly existence just scraping by, barely surviving for the last 15 years. How they went to get grain from the barn to feed their family and what should have been 20 measures was actually only 10. Half as much as they expected. Possibly half as much as they needed. When they went to draw wine, again, there was never enough. They had to ration everything to survive. And keep in mind, this is for over a decade. Sounds like a pretty miserly, miserable existence. And then Yahweh reminds them again, it was because I struck you. He's calling them to consider, to remind themselves again and again of Yahweh opposing them as a nation for their disobedience. He struck them and all their produce with blight, Blight referred to the hot wind that would blow in from the east off of the Arabian desert that would scorch and kill their plants. Mildew or mold would grow when there was excessive winds, moist winds from the Mediterranean blowing in. And he would destroy them with hail. God destroyed their crops in a variety of ways to try to get their attention. And yet he says, yet you did not turn to me. The people, they weren't considering their disobedience. They weren't considering the fact that that had led to their oppression, their miserly existence. But Yahweh tells them their disobedience was the reason that He had afflicted them. And Haggai is reminding them three times in this verse, consider, consider, consider. Continue to look back and consider your disobedience and the result that it had. Do you want to go back to the hardest time in your life? And relive it? Think about that for your own life. Hard times. Do you want to go back and relive those? Do you want to go back to another 15 years of just eking out an existence on the land? Barely scraping by? Miserable and never getting anywhere? That's what he's asking them. Consider. Remember. Do you want to go back to that? If you want to go back to that, just do whatever you want. But as you're walking in faithfulness, if you want to be blessed by God as a nation, continue repenting. Continue to walk in the path of blessing on which there is constant repentance happening. We know that as a believer, constant repentance happening. And that's the point of verse 18 where Haggai points the people into the future. Look at verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation of the temple, the Lord's temple was laid, consider. The Hebrew of verse 15 and 18 here is difficult to translate adequately, but what Haggai is getting at is that he wants them to reflect on the meaning of their economic difficulties. But here in verse 18, he indicates that he wants them to do this presently and from this day forward. They are to continue to think about this 
into the future. In the future, as they reflect on this, they'll have a clear distinction between this year and the 15 years prior. For Yahweh promises to bless them this coming harvest. He said, is the seed yet in the barn? As I mentioned, the people, they've likely just planted their seeds. Obviously, nothing's grown yet. But Yahweh promises them that even though none of the oil or the pomegranates, nothing has produced anything yet, because it's winter, and even in contrast to their last several years of harvest that have been miserly, this coming harvest, He will bless them because they are walking faithfully before Him. And as they reflect on this, this year, long into the future, as they consider this year, the before and the after, they're going to have a marked distinction. They will see clearly that there is a corporate blessing upon all the people when the nation walks in obedience to Yahweh. And they'll remember the time when there was cursing for the disobedience of the nation. But this is to be a motivation to continue to repent and to continue to live with Yahweh as the first priority, with Him as God, not putting anything else above Him, not their own households or anything else. As they remembered this and reflected on this, this would deter them from going back to busying themselves with their own homes. They would be motivated to continue to repent and walk in obedience as they remembered the blessings that accompanied such obedience in direct contrast to the prior years of frustration and frustration and frustration, year after year of not harvesting enough, only harvesting enough to barely survive. But again, this isn't for the individual, for them personally. This was for the corporate body. If they wanted the nation to thrive corporately, they needed to walk in obedience personally. And everyone together. Their own sin, as we already talked about, their own personal sin could result in defiling of the nation and plunge them back into curses. But they would be motivated here to walk in holiness because it would affect their brothers and sisters around them. The secret sin of just one person could take away the blessing of God from the corporate body. This is exemplified in the story of Achan from Joshua 7. Turn back with me to Joshua 7 to look at this. The secret sin of just one person can remove the blessing of God from the corporate body of His people. In chapter 6, Jericho falls by the power of God. The people marching around it, blowing trumpets, it falls. And the people were supposed to devote the things to destruction, but they could put the gold and the silver in the treasury of the Lord. There was one man named Achan who did not obey. He took a fancy cloak, some silver and gold for himself. But look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, and how Yahweh sees the sin of this individual before his people. Joshua 7, 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Notice it says, the people broke faith. And the cause for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. One individual's sin, yet Yahweh says, All Israel broke faith. Yahweh was angry against the people as a whole. This led to the defeat at Ai. Joshua, after this defeat, he went before the Lord grieving and asking why Yahweh had not fulfilled His promise to defeat the people of the land. And this is what he tells him. Look down at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. 
I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So one man's secret sin brought reproach upon the people and Yahweh's blessing of success was withheld. They did not defeat I, I defeated them. And no doubt we can imagine Achan as he's there. There's this fancy expensive cloak and this gold and silver thinking, what harm would taking this garment do? A couple pieces of silver, what harm does that do? Just a couple pieces of gold, what harm would that bring? My secret sin over here, it isn't hurting anyone else. It isn't affecting anyone else. Beloved, that is one of the greatest lies of Satan. As we already talked about, it has the power to corrupt others into doing the same thing. But it can also bring reproach upon the whole corporate body of God's people. And God may withhold blessing those people because of it. So we must walk righteously before Yahweh as an individual because even the sin of one can bring reproach and remove the blessing. And I think similarly to this case, we need to understand that our personal sin, it can bring reproach upon the church. And it's a grace of God that He does not withhold blessing the church for every personal sin of mine or yours, or else there'd never be a blessing for anyone. But the motivation here is to understand that our individual obedience it promotes corporate obedience and blessing. And we should be motivated toward personal holiness because we know it will contribute to the holiness of others. It will encourage others toward the same thing. And it will be bring the blessing of the Lord upon our church. And as we are faithful, you know, Jeff talked about this in the uh, equipping hour, confronting sin confronting our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we're faithful to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we purge sin from among us, beginning in our own hearts, we will bring the blessing of God upon our church in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God doesn't promise us as Christians material prosperity, though that often does accompany God's people in a society that operates off of Judeo-Christian values and worldview, the blessing He does promise is a corporate body at peace with God and one another, solidified in the goal of building the church, which is pleasing in His sight and glorifying to Him. This blessing looks like success in evangelism and discipleship. Jesus promised to build His church and, church and the gates of hell would not prevail against the church marching forth and proclaiming the gospel. The gospel knocks down the gates of hell and frees the prisoners and the church continues to be built. That's the blessing of the Lord upon a church. But gospel blessings are granted to true churches. Churches that follow what the Scriptures say. Churches that practice the ordinances of baptism and communion, who practice church discipline. Churches that take sin seriously. They don't tolerate the Achans or the sexually immoral among them. They deal with them. But if a church puts up with sin, Jesus told the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 that if the church didn't repent, He would come and take away their lampstand. He would come and take away their true status as a church. They would no longer be a true church. And there would be no more gospel success for that church. And such a thing starts with just the sin of one person not being dealt with. Individually in our own hearts, not repenting, holding this secret sin, hiding it away, and then others not dealing with it when they know about it. So beloved, let that motivate your holiness. That you want to continue to see Grace Church here. You want to see God's blessing and His grace poured out into our local church here. 
to see people being saved and then baptized, and then for those who are saved, to see them sanctified and made more like Christ. And the unity and the bond of peace we have here is precious. And you, you can guard that corporate unity and peace and blessing by guarding your own heart from sin, by repenting quickly. So let's be motivated to refrain from sin because it defiles those around us. And let us be motivated to walk faithfully to preserve the blessing that we do have here. And finally, be motivated to walk faithfully because of the personal reward that you will receive. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So it's the same day, but it's a different message that the Lord told Haggai to speak directly to Zerubbabel. Presumably, looking him in the face, this is the message as he had the other times. And because of Zerubbabel's faithfulness to walk according to God's word, to heed the words of Haggai, his messenger, because of his individual faithfulness, Yahweh is going to reward him. And while we don't have the same promises of this reward, I think this section emphasizes the personal reward aspect of faithfulness to God. God rewards personal, individual faithfulness accordingly. Not only is there a corporate blessing upon everyone else for individual faithfulness, but there's an individual reward for obedience. And so the Lord tells Haggai, He says, speak to Zerubbabel. And then there is this repeated phrase from verse 6 that we talked about last week. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. So this is a return to that eschatological language, end times language that we talked about last time where Christ will come, return to the earth, set up His kingdom on the earth. That's what it's talking about. When I do all of this. Whereas in chapter 2, 6-9, the disruption of the cosmos began a process that ultimately resulted in the wealth of the nation streaming into the temple. Here, the same disruption ultimately leads to the subjugation of the nations. All the nations are going to be conquered. We talked about that last week as well. Jesus Christ will overthrow the kingdoms by smiting their armies, and presumably God will set His ruler up who has gone forth to destroy these armies and establish His kingdom on earth. So He says, tells Zerubbabel, Look at verse 23 again. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord. The language is very emphatic as to who Yahweh is referring to in verse 23. He says, I will take you, and then just in case there's any confusion as to who he's referring to, he says, O Zerubbabel, my servant, which could be a reference to the Messiah in prophetic writings, but it reiterates it again for clarification, the son of Shealtiel. So there's no misunderstanding the reference to this promise here. It's the individual Zerubbabel. This man Zerubbabel is in mind. Yahweh then tells him what he is going to do. He says, I'm going to take you and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. A signet ring, it was a common reference in the royal vocabulary of the ancient Near East. It designated a piece of metal jewelry on which was etched an impression of the seal of the king. It symbolized the authority of the king. And the one who had the signet ring had the authority of the king himself. Many commentators point to Jeremiah 22 where 
Kaniah or Jehoiakim, two different names he's referred to there. This was the king at the time in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came up against Babylon. Jeremiah prophesied and said in Jeremiah 22, 24 to 27, he said, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. So, Kaniah or Jehoiakim was removed from his position of authority, removed from being king, removed as the signet ring from Yahweh's hand. And our text is pointing to, many of these commentators point to this, and they say this is pointing to the restoration of the line of David through Zerubbabel. That there was once again someone in the line of David blessed by God with future promise. And it would give people great hope. And I agree that this is pointing to that. That this would give future hope for the line of David returned with the blessing of God. But that future promise of someone in the line of David coming is not the direct promise here in this passage. That cannot be the extent of the fulfillment here. And some stop short of the fulfillment with that. One commentator says regarding these promises to Zerubbabel, none of these things happened in the lifetime of those who heard Haggai. The temple was finished in 516 BC, but the treasures of the nations were never brought in in an eschatological sense. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Zerubbabel dropped out of sight in a very few years with no explanation of what happened to him. Was Haggai wrong? His words were not fulfilled in the way or within the time frame expected. And he goes on to explain his fulfillment. He says, The fulfillment tarried many centuries then with the coming of Christ, in a spiritual but no, real, no less real way, Haggai's hopes for the temple and Zerubbabel were fulfilled. And for many, this is the end of the commentary on Haggai. All these things, they're just fulfilled in Christ. But then many of them have an exegetical problem which few commentators note. One commentator says, the magnitude of these promises to Zerubbabel poses an exegetical problem. Were these pronouncements actually fulfilled in Zerubbabel? I mean, you read the text, they're obviously a promise made to him, right? And it's pretty much universally recognized that these promises were not fulfilled in Zerubbabel in the time that he lived back then, which leaves them with an exegetical problem. Many of them ask, the question they're asking behind the question is, is God faithful to his promises? But this is only an exegetical problem for those who do not read the end times description in the Bible literally. This is not an exegetical problem for us who hold to a premillennial position. Because we know that Christ is coming to establish his kingdom here on the earth, and there's time for this promise to be fulfilled for Zerubbabel. These very real promises to Zerubbabel can and will be fulfilled when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. When Christ sets up his millennial rule on the earth, he's going to fulfill his promises to Zerubbabel, which means God is faithful to his promise. He is going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. But what does that mean? Does that mean he's going to be made king in Jerusalem? Well, no, Christ will reign as king in Jerusalem. If you're following the church's Bible reading plan that we are all doing, many of us are doing together, you're about to or you have just read where Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt and eventually he gets raised to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. And this is what Pharaoh told Joseph in Genesis 41, 40 to 44. He says, You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So this signet ring language indicates that Zerubbabel, he is going to be given a very high position of authority in the kingdom to execute the will of the king. Here in the millennial kingdom, of it's of Christ on earth. Just as Joseph did for Pharaoh. Zerubbabel, he's going to be made governor like Joseph was to execute Christ's will on earth and probably in a certain section of earth and perhaps even in Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel's faithfulness, I mean, imagine this, Zerubbabel, he's over a few thousand people, but he's faithful. And so God promises to reward him, and we don't know if it's Jerusalem for sure, but that would, with a sanctified speculation, I think we can assume that. But because of Zerubbabel's faithfulness, he's going to go in this life struggling through leading a sinful people, barely scraping by, the temple that just is inglorious compared to the last one. He is promised a high position to lead in before God's people there. How awesome would that be for Zerubbabel to think about? Not only being governor of a few thousand people, but thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the millennial kingdom streaming in that he's governing. Because he's faithful with little, God has promised him much. Zerubbabel's faithfulness to obey the word of the Lord resulted in this reward of a high position of prominence. And we can't just spiritualize these promises away. This is a very real promise to an individual that cannot be fulfilled by another. That cannot have its full fulfillment in the person of Christ. Yahweh's personal promise to this individual must be fulfilled or God changes His promises or is unfaithful to His promises. And this is where we find the hope for ourselves as well. This is great motivation for us to walk in faithfulness and holiness before Christ. We have been promised similar things, though not the same thing. Paul told the Corinthians that the work of their life, the deeds that they do as believers, would one day be put into a fire to be tested. And if any person's work survives, he says such a one receives his reward. 1 Corinthians 3.13-14 The individual's work and merit will earn him a reward. Not salvation. Salvation is purchased by Christ In His work, we are justified by faith alone in Christ. But we will be rewarded according to how we steward the life that God has given us. In Luke 19, Jesus told a parable of the minas. You might be familiar with that. Where those who were anticipating the kingdom coming, they were charged to be faithful with what the Lord had given them. And when the Lord returned to set up His kingdom... He made the two faithful servants to have authority over cities in accordance with their personal faithfulness. The one that he had given ten minus two returned to him ten minus, and God said, okay, you've been faithful. Here are ten cities. The one who was faithful with five, God gave him five cities. In Revelation 2, again, Jesus writes to the churches and gives many promises of rewards to those who endure to the end, but he tells the church of Thyatira in chapter 2, 26-27, he says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom on this earth, For the thousand-year millennial reign, he will put faithful saints of the past in positions of authority in that kingdom to rule over the entire earth. 
It's a one-world government ruled by Jesus Christ, the beneficent king, benevolent king. And his administration will be made up of saints of old with varying degrees of responsibility. And you, and you, and you will be rewarded with a position in accordance to how faithfully you were to walk and steward your life. I think we could use a sanctified imagination to think how this would transfer into the eternal state with all the organization and facilitation that would need to happen with a massive city described at the end of Revelation. And I think it's safe to assume that there will be some correlation of positions in the eternal state as well. And yes, the reward of eternal life is Christ Himself. Everything else will pale in comparison to that. But the Scriptures speak of rewards beyond Christ in eternity. And beloved, each of you, each of us, will be rewarded in accordance with our personal faithfulness in stewarding our money, our time, our energies, our gifts. You will be rewarded for giving your life to the building of Christ's church. Don't get distracted with meager things. Why are we so easily distracted and enamored with the things of this world? Is anything we do on earth, anything that we accomplish here going to compare? Does anything we do on this earth have any kind of lasting reward like this? So beloved, I urge you to consider how you are investing in that future reward. The things of this world are going to dry up and blow away like the dust. This is what ate away at Solomon in Ecclesiastes. You work and you work and you work and you build all of this only to hand it to somebody else. Somebody who squanders it after you're gone. But in contrast to that, the resources, the time and the energy, your skills, your service in building the church, acts of service, evangelism, discipleship, those are storing up a reward that will reap dividends into eternity. So be motivated to continue repenting. Because your sin has a defiling power that you can't anticipate or predict. It will always defile more than you expect, degrade beyond what you imagine. Stay away from it for your own sake and for the love of your brother around you. And be motivated to walk in holiness because it preserves the blessing of the Lord upon the corporate body here. Your sin does affect those around you. And continue to live a life of repentance. And we do that together to maintain a status as a true church with the blessing of Christ that His gospel, His church will advance against the gates of hell to free sinners and to sanctify us. But also be motivated by that future reward that you will receive for your own personal faithfulness. But consider deeply your stewardship and where you need to change And I can assure you, I don't know if you've talked to older saints, but none of them regret investing in the church. Everything else around them, all the other endeavors in their life, they get to the end and they say, I wish I had invested more in the kingdom. They never say, I wish I'd invested more on this earth that's fleeting and passing away. So let's learn from their wisdom. Let's learn from Haggai here as he encourages us to consider every day, consider every day looking past at the cursing that we endured, the frustration that we endured for disobedience. Consider the blessing that the Lord has bestowed upon us for faithfulness. And let's consider the future reward that we will have. Beloved, go and invest wisely. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, We were once your enemies, deserving of nothing but the full wrath from you. And yet you have plucked us from the pits of hell. Your gospel has advanced and broken down 
the gates of hell in all of our hearts. We have been set free to serve you. And I pray, Lord, that we every day would consider the past life that we've been set free from and the life that we have been given. We deserve none of this. We don't deserve to be servants of your door in heaven, much less to be brought in to be co-heirs with Christ. You have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Nothing exceeds our blessing. And yet so often we squander what you have given us, Lord. Help us to be faithful stewards. Help us to be mindful that our sin defiles others. Help us to be mindful that we live and steward our life to promote the holiness of this church. That we might continue to receive your blessing that your kingdom and your church would continue to advance against the gates of hell. May we not become fickle with regard to our reward. May we teach ourselves delayed gratification that we might be better at living now in light of a distant, distant reward. Lord God, as we read your word in the coming days and weeks, continue to remind us of these things. Force us to continue to consider and set our heart upon these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.